Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Thank you very much, Jane, for your kind words. Um, a friend warned me a few, a few days ago um, that probably the hardest thing would be looking up um, at the, my inaugural lecture and seeing this sea of familiar faces um, from so many parts of my life all brought together in one room and looking expectantly um, towards me and then trying to find something remotely coherent to say for the next 45 minutes. Um, but nerves aside, it is an absolute privilege and it's quite humbling as well um, to find myself in front of an audience made up of colleagues from across the different faculties in the university, from professional services at the university, um, from ex-colleagues, from friends, family, and also students who I thought would have had enough of me in my lectures, but it's very nice of you to come as well. Um, and I suppose it's, it's, it's humbling because there are so many people who have been so supportive throughout my career and who have inspired and continue to inspire me um, today. So thank you very much for coming, especially on a cold Thursday evening in February, when I'm sure you've got better things to do, and especially to listen to a talk on Paraguay, because it's very rare, as you can imagine, that I have a captive audience for 45 minutes to talk about Paraguay. Good. Now, before I begin, I'd like to start with a couple of things, just to say a big thank you to Hannah Cook, um, who has organized this event with a normal, extraordinary efficiency, eye for detail, and patience, especially when I didn't reply to emails for days at a time. I'd also like to thank the department for putting on the wine reception um, to which you're all invited afterwards. And I would like to thank Ian Butler um, for his point blank refusal um, to listen when I said I really didn't want to do an inaugural. <laughs> um, so thank you for that, I think. Um, now, the most obvious question I think I'd, I need to answer, um, or I feel obliged to answer whenever I, I, I present, is, is why Paraguay? I think that's the, kind of the, the first question. And I'll go for two answers, because I think I really ought to start with an academic reason, given the, the, the occasion. And that is that Paraguayan politics and history, as I hope you will discover tonight, is absolutely fascinating. It's vibrant, it's compelling, it's a rich history of social and political struggle. Um, and it is understudied. There are very few, as you might imagine, there are very few people on an international level who are actually working on Paraguay. So it's very kind of Jane to say I'm one of the few, or one of the international experts, but there are very few. Um, <laughs> the, second, the second reason, I suppose, is a little less academic. Um, according, <laughs> according to Paraguayan folklore, if you swim in the once beautiful lake of Ipacaray, the, the blue lake of Paraguay, um, Paraguay, this is um, Paraguay, sorry, the, the, the Lake Ipacaray, which according to Guarani mythology is where the earth, the land without evil, as it was called, was born. And if you swim in that lake, Paraguay will enter into your soul and it will never leave you. Um, given that this lake is highly contaminated these days, um, it sounds today much more ominous than it was probably sounded a few years ago. But it is a common theme among academics who do work on Paraguay um, that a short you know, an intended short visit to Paraguay turned into a lifetime's relationship and a lifelong passion um, towards research um, on politics and history. Now, I think it's fair to say that Paraguay is, is one of the more forgotten corners of the globe. Um, there's, uh, it's, it's been described in a book as a land falling off our conscious map of the world, um, a place that slips beneath the radar of diplomats, of journalists, of academics, and even of tourists, backpackers, 
tends to go Argentina, Brazil, they get to the falls of Iguazu, and then they go to Asuncion for one night on their way to Bolivia, Ecuador, and Peru. Um, it's in the words of P.J. O'Rourke, in his ignorance, he said, famously quoted, Paraguay is nowhere and it's famous for nothing. <laughs> but he did go there and he changed his mind. So we forgive him a little bit. Um, I think it's fair to say that general knowledge on Paraguay is perhaps limited. Um, limited, even in Latin America. I can't count the number of times that I've been at conferences and I've been introduced as a specialist on Uruguay, on Panama, and even on Peru, which would be nice, um, but I'm not. And that's by Latin Americans. Um, Paraguay does have a, 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 an issue of visibility, shall we say. So I'm going to move away from what you might expect from an inaugural lecture, with apologies, um, because I think Paraguay needs something of an introduction before I get down to the politics of the coup, the priest, or the priest, the coup, and the party. Now, part of the reason for this lack of understanding of Paraguay is that it is a country defined much more by, um, sorry, much more by isolation than by historic association. Um, its most famous author, Augusto Roabastos, famously said that Paraguay is a land, is, is a country, sorry, is an island surrounded by land, cut off from the winds of social, political, and cultural change, cut off from the winds of modernity. And to an extent, this is very much true. Paraguay is hemmed in on the west by the vast arid Chaco region, pretty impenetrable desert, um, and until recently, it was cut off from the north and west by impenetrable rainforests. Sadly, most of those have, have disappeared. And it was reliant on the cooperation, or not, of Buenos Aires, a thousand miles down the river Paraná, for its communication with the world. So there is an, a strong element of historic isolation. And the cultural, um, the cultural, political, economic ramifications of this are numerous. But perhaps the most striking example is the language that is spoken in Paraguay. Because although most of the people, the vast majority, understand Spanish, and it is used as the language of business, the language of law, the language of politics, of the media, the vast majority of Paraguayans, nearly 90%, are far more comfortable speaking in Guarani rather than, uh, rather than Spanish, as our poor students who go on placement to rural Paraguay find out when they arrive there and don't understand a word that is being spoken to them. Um, good. So historical isolation um, is expressed, I think, in, in not only in, in cultural terms in Paraguay, but it has led to a considerable ignorance and misunderstanding from outside. And this ignorance, I think, has allowed Paraguay to become a perfect blank canvas for the cultural and political imaginings um, of the West. That, in fact, we've imposed a kind of, um, we've imposed a form of cultural exoticism, not Orientalism, because it's the other way, but certainly a kind of exoticism on Paraguay due to our own ignorance. Um, it's a land where exaggeration can go unchallenged. An exotic backdrop to our own literary imaginings. This is just a trawl of a couple of the books. And many writers, including dear Graham Greene, um, all the way to others such as Nigel Cawthorn, have fallen and continue to fall into the trap of seeing Paraguay as uh, full of stereotypical images of tin pot generals, tyrants, corruption, Nazi war criminals on the run, etc., etc., with Paraguay presented as a slightly humorous, 
slightly sad, slightly backward land, sometimes in an exotic utopia, the idea of lost paradise somehow, but more often not as a dysfunctional dystopia, as in paradise with serpents. Um, yes, in the land, in the lost world of Paraguay. That was written in 2007. Paraguay is not lost, but it's this whole image of this lost utopia, this lost paradise that authors keep coming back to. It's actually a dreadful book. Please do not buy that book. <laughs> I don't think the bloke ever went there. Right, but this blank canvas is certainly not limited to foreign cultural, interpretation, cultural interpretations. For centuries, foreigners, mainly Westerners, have viewed the country as a potential utopia, the land without evil, as I mentioned, in Guarani mythology. A land for new beginnings, leaving the old continent and moving to somewhere new where paradise could be created, and often seen through a particularly, particular religious or ideological gaze. So the Spanish, when they arrived there, were convinced that El Dorado, the golden, the land of gold, was just over the horizon. And they mainly went the wrong way. They tried to cross the Chaco and never made it back. But they were convinced it was there for a long time. The Jesuits... Um, sought to establish model communities of God in the Paraguayan wilderness, in Misiones, all around there. You might have seen the film The Mission from the 1980s. Um, Mennonites, ostracized from around the world, from Russia, Mexico, Canada, um, established communities in the arid Chaco Desert and made it into a fertile landscape, in many cases, becoming the main dairy producers in Paraguay today. And there were innumerable European colonization programs. That, and the name gives away this, this exoticism with, what, with which Paraguay was seen. New London, New Bordeaux, New Italy. Others with more utopian dreams, such as the socialist utopia of the beginning of the 20th century, New Australia. They all fell out with each other, and um, it didn't last very well. And of course, the more notorious experiment of Elizabeth Nietzsche at the end of the 19th century to create an Aryan paradise in New Germany. Now, I said I'd, I'd give you a little bit of a historical introduction, but I'm not going to race through history. That would, be, that would be cruel on you. What I thought I would do is just pick out two themes that are actually relevant to what happens in Paraguay later, um, when we get to, to, to current affairs. Looking back through post-colonial history, there are two key themes that emerge from a study of Paraguay. The first is the so-called authoritarian tradition in Paraguay. Following independence from Spain in 1811, Paraguay was ruled for the next 60 years by three, pretty austere, um, authoritarian absolute rulers, José Gaspar Rodríguez de Francia, Carlos Antonio López, and his son, Francisco Solano López. Um, and these three rulers not only crushed internal opposition, but interestingly put in place what has been called an autonomous revolution, Latin America's first autonomous revolution, based on the destruction of the Spanish elites, the destruction of the church power, and the destruction of the landholding elites, pretty much getting rid of all of the alternate power bases, and following, way before its time, the idea of state-led development, the state developing in isolation. And this authoritarian experiment did bring a degree of development to Paraguay. And certainly, in Paraguayan popular consciousness, these are three of the founding fathers of Paraguay. So we're talking about the internalization of an authoritarian tradition. The second major theme that runs through Paraguayan history, sadly, is conflict. Now, Paraguay 
actually avoided the destruction of the inter-elite conflicts that plagued many Latin American republics in the, uh, 20, uh, in the 19th century following independence. The interminable civil wars as described in Gabriel Garcia Marquez's um, Hundred Years of Solitude. However, when political violence has occasionally erupted, and it is quite rare, it has been on a catastrophic scale in Paraguay. Never more strikingly than the war, so-called War of the Triple Alliance of 1864-70. And no Paraguayan will ever tell you about what is going on in Paraguay today without starting, at least in 1864, usually earlier. And this was important because Paraguay, the last of the three absolute leaders, Francisco Solano López, took on not only Argentina, but also Uruguay and Brazil, all three backed by British finance. Um, what was extraordinary is that Paraguay, well, the war um, lasted six years. It obviously resulted in, in defeat for Paraguay, the destruction of the Paraguay model of development, the loss of about 25% of Paraguay's land, including the famous um, waterfalls of Iguazu, which nowadays you go then, there's either a Brazilian side or an Argentinian side. Paraguayans still say it's all theirs. Um, and reparations, which actually lasted well into the 20th century until the 1950s. Um, more importantly, in what has been termed Latin America's only genocidal war, um, it also led to the loss of 60% of the Paraguayan population, including, extraordinarily, 90% of men over 14 years old. This was... This was what Paraguayans might call genocide. Now, moving ahead a little bit, I, I told you, this isn't going to be a cheery talk. <laughs> I tell you. Uh, you should have known that from the title. Now, political instability and a rich history of, of struggles for democracy um, in the 20th century ended in 1954 with the dictatorship of General Alfredo Stroessner who sought to rekindle this idea of the authoritarian tradition. He very much presented himself as the fourth of the great builders of the country. Um, Stroessner ruled with the help of the armed forces. In the context of the Cold War, he ruled with the help of the armed forces, the United States, and the Colorado Party. Now, there you go. That's the party, and they will reappear later. Um, turning Paraguay into what Eduardo Galeano has called the kingdom of institutionalized corruption. Stroessner famously said that corruption was the price of peace, allowing generals to fill their pockets, literally, but hatch no plots against him. Indeed, Stroessner saw himself very much as a protector of peace, democracy, and liberty. He also turned winning elections into a fine art. Um, he won eight consecutive elections between 1954 and 89, five of which were with over 90% of the popular vote, um, one of which actually had more voters than, than were on the electoral register. <laughs> now, that was until 1989, running very quickly through it, when he was overthrown by his erstwhile ally, his relation through marriage, a military strongman, Andres Rodriguez. Um, who launched Paraguay onto a rapid transition away from authoritarianism. Andres Rodriguez was actually wanted by the Drugs Enforcement Agency on drug smuggling charges, and he quickly just made a deal, it seems, that charges would be dropped, providing he, he promoted a democracy in Paraguay, which he, he did. And it was actually being in Paraguay, I've had the privilege of being in Paraguay at this time, for the last couple of years of the dictatorship, right through 
the first few years of Paraguay's stumbling transition towards democracy. And that's what really inspired my research, I think. Um, and it was because Paraguay seemed to be doing everything right. It established elections on a municipal level, on a, on a, on a, on a regional level, presidential elections, congressional elections. They had every observer fly in and give them a tick and say, this is fine, they're free and fair. It wrote a constitution which was relatively progressive and protected civil rights and uh, political freedoms. And it joined Mercosur, the regional trade bloc of Argentina, Brazil, and Uruguay. Um, and successive presidents, presidents, right up, the first five presidents, all declared repeatedly that the transition was now over and that we could relax. And yet, and yet, and this is what was fascinating, beneath the surface of a successful democratic tradition, there were clear fault lines in this process going on in Paraguay, and that's what made it fascinating. Because it raised serious questions about the whole idea of democratization going in a nice linear fashion towards democracy, and it undermined much of the optimism of the 1990s and made it seem wholly inapplicable to the Paraguayan case. Um, most importantly, most important among the problems was the Colorado Party, because although they had been the pillar of the Stroessner regime, in 1989, when Stroessner fell, they rapidly converted themselves from an authoritarian party, if you like, to the party that had not only um, initiated democracy with the coup, but also the dominant force that was going to lead the transition to democracy. So there's a, a large degree of continuity. Now, they were able to do this because of their vast networks of patronage, of clientelism established under the, the, the Stroessner regime, and their dominance of the state sector. Under Stroessner, to be work in the public sector, you had to be a member of the Colorado Party. Now, go, the, the state sector is a bastion of support for the party. Um, under Stroessner, any kind of economic or political or even social advancement on the village level, on the town level, was through the local party branch. Um, and it became, it was, one of Latin America's most powerful and best organized political movements. Um, and what's extraordinary about the 1990s, looking back, is that despite extraordinary levels of corruption, economic reception, uh, recession, economic collapse almost in 1996, um, despite three attempted military uprisings, despite a catalogue of errors, ineffectual governance, just about everything, they kept winning the elections by quite large majorities. Um, by 2002, Paraguay not only had some of the highest levels of poverty and inequality in Latin America, but it was also, it became first in the uh, Transparency International rankings of corruption, per perception of corruption in the world. And you can imagine, in this environment, money laundering, drugs trafficking, arms tra trafficking, and contraband absolutely flourished. So we got to this position, we're in this position at the beginning of the 2000s where Paraguay is no longer under authoritarian rule. There's no dictator here. But its democracy is certainly unconsolidated and with signs of what Wolfgang Merkel has called a defective democracy. The, the, a democracy characterized by structural deficits and things like rule of law, checks and balances, um, uh, civil rights, and a high degree of concentration of power in this one political party. And certainly, democracy seemed to be under threat, not from a military coup, as you might expect, 
by what, by what the Argentinian Guillermo O'Donnell has termed the slow death of decay, stagnation, and disillusionment with democracy. And this was reflected, I always do this, <laughs> sorry. And this was reflected in a series of polls by the, 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 the very reputable, highly regarded Chilean survey co uh, company, uh, organization Latin Barometer. And Paraguay consistently scored lowest in South America on almost all ratings of attitudes towards democracy. Towards democracy, trust, um, civil engagement, etc. Just as a, as a visual, this is satisfaction with democracy in 2007 across Latin America. And you will see right up there at the top, you have Uruguay, you have Venezuela, Costa Rica, Nicaragua. It's with relatively high. Right at the bottom is Paraguay, with just 9% showing satisfaction with democracy. And this is, well, this is getting on for 20 years after the <coughs> transition. Now, why is this important? Well, it raises questions about the legitimacy of democracy. And by extension, it raises questions about the sustainability of democracy. Even more chilling, I suppose, in terms of the Latin barometer results in 2007, were that nearly 70% of Paraguayans said that in certain circumstances, authoritarianism is preferable to democracy, the highest in Latin America. Something was going wrong, and what was becoming increasingly clear is that change was in the air, and many felt that this could well be a regression towards authoritarianism. So when change did happen, it happened pretty unexpectedly. In 2008, Fernando Lugo, at the head of the Alliance for Change coalition, shocked many international observers, in fact shocked us all, shocked many Paraguayans by winning the presidential election. And this was a truly historic event in Paraguay's history for three main reasons. Number one, um, he put an end to 61 years of continuous, uninterrupted rule by the Colorado Party, which has seemed impossible. Um, by the time, by 2008, over 95% of Paraguayans had known no other political party in power. Um, second, it brought about the first peaceful, uh, uh, peaceful uh, transition or transfer of power between political parties in Paraguay's entire history. And third, it brought to power a former bishop. He was Bishop of Concepcion in Paraguay from 1995 to 2005, 1994 to 2005. What was perhaps even more astonishing that in a country with such an authoritarian tradition and ruled by deeply conservative administrations for most of its history, Lugo came to power on a platform of change with a discourse inspired by liberation of the uh, theology and in favor of the poor. And all of the complexity of Paraguayan's history and the, the importance of his victories summed up beautifully in a quote from the Mail Online, world's longest ruling party loses power in Paraguay to bearded, sandal-wearing former <laughs> bishop. As I said, coverage of Paraguay is not the most informed at all times. Um, now, um, Lugo aligning himself with what's sometimes being called, again, this is through ignorance, the pink tide um, of, of reformist governments in Latin America, Lugo argued something that was very original in Paraguay, unprecedented. He argued that democracy was not about just elections. Instead, it, was about, uh, it wasn't about elections, it wasn't about procedures, it wasn't about institutions. Of course, they play a role. 
But he argued that corruption, inequality, poverty, exclusion were not inconveniences in a democracy. They were actually went to the heart of democratic citizenship and emptied democracy of all meaning. That what kind of democracy does Paraguay have? Given the highest levels of inequality in land ownership, for example, in Latin America, the highest levels of corruption and very high levels of poverty. And by extension of this, he argued that democracy could only function through significant reform of social welfare, education, healthcare, land ownership, the justice system, and proactive policies in favor of the poor, and the marginalized, and to reduce inequality. So um, basically reforming the whole system. Now, sorry, I'll get rid of that. <laughs> Back to, back to so when Lugo promised, in a very poetic style, a new dawn for Paraguay based on social justice, peace, and solidarity, many believed in Paraguay that he could actually achieve this. By 2009, his popularity rating was over 90%. Indeed, in his first two years of the presidency, he made some very important changes, some very important um, advances. He introduced, for the first time in Paraguay's history, free access to healthcare, free maternity care, free emergency um, healthcare. Um, he developed a whole system of social pharmacies, which were subsidized by the state for the, for the, uh, the, the, the in poorer area, rural areas, and free access to certain medicines. He also, in order to, to tackle the question of poverty, he implemented a cash, um, conditional cash transfer system, which had was very much based on the, the, the famous Brazilian system of Bolsa Familia. This is the idea that uh, families living in, uh, very, in very high levels of poverty receive a monthly direct cash subsidy in return for guarantees of, of health care, of vaccinations, and school attendance for their children. So you're actually making sure that education and health care arrive to the very poorest. And in terms of the the public sector, and this is really for my colleagues from HR, um, he introduced for the first time in Paraguayan history an appointment and promotions scheme based on merit um, rather than political allegiance and nepotism, um, which was very successful. And in fact, Paraguay became something of a case study in the idea of creation, creating islands of integrity, as they were called, in which in certain ministries, and in certain sectors of the public sector, corruption was, was, was rooted out, best practice was put in place, and then was gradually extended from the Ministry of Finance to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and so on. And in foreign policy, Lugo managed to convince President Lula of Brazil that it was high time that the Brazilians stopped robbing, well, sorry, I shouldn't say that, stopped um, uh, uh, that they changed the, their, their policy towards Paraguay on the payments they made for the shared hydroelectric um, power plant um, that produces most of Brazilian energy. And this gave Lugo $360 million a year ring-fenced for social projects. So everything is going well. And it would be lovely to stop right now. But you know I'm not going to, and it, you know it's, it's going to go downhill from here. Because within two years, Lugo was finding his reform project was simply running out of steam. Now, part of the problem was that Lugo had come to power in a very kind of complex, at the head of a very complex alliance, a coalition, um, which lacked an overall majority in parliament. Part of the problem 
was that the main part of his coalition was the Liberal Party, the other party in Paraguayan history, the Colorado Party and the Liberal Party, both founded in 1887, both without any kind of ideological stance at all, one's red, one's blue, but it was pretty much a conservative party, despite the name, which represented landowners and some of the very wealthy in Paraguay, just like the Colorado Party. And this, combined with a very weak presidentialist system that Paraguay has, limited his power to introduce the sweeping changes that he wanted to do. In order to do that, he would have to change the Constitution, as many other presidents in Latin America have done. But the root of the problem actually went deeper. Um, it actually involved what Geraldine Livesley has termed an undemocratic opposition, an opposition that is willing to undermine democracy in order to promote its own interests. And what he found was that Congress was in opposition to him, became increasingly in opposition to his reform program. So Congress blocked his reform bills. Secondly, because of its power over the, um, over the budget, it inflated the budget in order to create a fiscal deficit which would undermine macroeconomic performance and therefore undermine the regime. Um, they even um, increased their own budget by 52% in 2009, just to really annoy Lugo, I think. And at the same time, they cut the budgets for the social reform program. So they cut the budgets even for the conditional cash transfer budget, which had been internationally recognized and supported by the World Bank, by the IDRB, by all kinds of organizations, was simply cut. Um, and this was, as they said, to stop Lugo creating a base of support among the peasantry, and especially among the landless peasantry. They feared that Lugo was a communist, that he would take over, that he would create a base of sport, support and undermine um, power structures in Paraguay. So parallel to this, we also see a media campaign which was extraordinary in a sense. From the day he was elected, the main newspapers, the, main, the media is very uh, tightly controlled in Paraguay in terms of ownership. Very few people control most of the different media outlets. It's very highly concentrated. So what we saw was that Lugo continued to be associated with Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, Evo Morales in Bolivia, even though he really was just kind of a moderate social democrat by our standards, and he was a priest as well. Um, he was also associated with um, the peasant organizations. He was associated by extension with Paraguay's incipient guerrilla movement, the Paraguayan People's Army. And by extension of that, he was associated with the, the FARC guerrillas in Colombia. And it was really reminiscent of the kind of the anti-communist discourse of the Strozner times. There would be pictures of him next to Chavez at some international conferencing showing there's the proof. There's the proof that we have a revolutionary bishop who is leading us down the path to chaos. And I'll just give you one example. Um, and that was the issue of tax reform. Because this whole project was to be funded by... The, the renegotiation with Brazil of tax royalties from Itaipu, but also it was to be funded by the introduction, and I mean the introduction of income tax. Paraguay in 2010 was the only country in the Western Hemisphere with no income tax. Um, now his bill would have affected approximately 10,000 people only, that's 0.3% of the economic active population, um, with a top rate of 10%. He also wanted to tax agricultural exports, which again paid no direct export tax, because Paraguay is the fourth largest exporter of soya. 
and these soya companies were paying absolutely zero, or pretty much zero tax, direct tax to the government. What happened is it was defeated on two separate occasions by Congress, by an alliance of liberals and, Col and Colorados who simply saw that this would affect their own interests. The same happens with land reform. The liberal and the Colorado deputies are all major landowners. Any kind of land reform would have undermined them. And they had the support, of course, of the Sawyer, um, Sawyer Producers Association and the uh, Rural Association of Paraguay, the two biggest lobbying groups in Paraguay. Same with judicial reform. The major political parties simply got together and said no, because the judiciary is based on a system whereby the uh, all appointments are made by political parties and not on merit. So what we see is that gradually the, this whole reform project grinds to a halt. And as it grinds to a halt, what happens in the countryside is that social tensions rise. And they're expressed through demonstrations, and most importantly, by land occupations. Paraguay is still based on a rural economy. 30 to 40% of Paraguayans have no land. And the land distribution is the most unequal in Latin America, in Paraguay. And it's during one of these land occupations that police efforts to evict the, the, the 80 families who were there ended with a shootout during which um, 11 peasants and six policemen were killed. Now, this is not large scale in terms of, of some of the social conflicts in Latin America, but it was the most significant political violence in Paraguay during the transition. And I suppose what was, was striking was that there has been no public inquiry, that the few investigations that have been done, one by a Spanish organization, found inconsistencies, which mean it's shrouded in mystery. The police killed were found to have been killed by high-velocity fire from semi-automatic weapons when the peasants had kind of shooting, um, um, hunting rifles and shotguns. It just doesn't add up, and many Paraguayans are still pressing for a public inquiry. And this fueled rumors that it was some kind of setup. And if it was a setup, it was highly effective. And this is where we move towards the coup. Because within a week of the events at Curuguatu, this, this, this town um, where the, the shootings took place, Lugo was facing formal impeachment charges by Congress. Um, now, th this does exist in the Constitution. You can impeach a president. Um, but there has to be evidence. In this case, what was striking was the lack of reference to any serious malpractice. There was no nothing to do with corruption or theft, abuse of human rights, violation of the Constitution, violation of the Presidential Code. None of that came into it. He was simply done on poor performance, five counts of poor performance, um, chief among which was that he had somehow been morally responsible for the events at Curuguatu and the, the killing of the policemen and the, the peasants because of his so-called his efforts to, to, to inspire peasants to take up land. Now, the actual impeachment process was also extraordinary. Um, first, it all happened so quickly. He was given 24 hours, just 24 hours, to prepare his case. Um, and then only two hours to defend it before the Senate. Um, no evidence was presented at all because the prosecution said in Senate that the evidence was common knowledge, in inverted commas, and that everybody knew. Um, and this therefore clearly violated the, the, the articles of the Constitution, which give you a right to see the evidence, to challenge the evidence, and to defend yourself. 
But an array of lawyers in Paraguay and experts on law came out and said, yes, in the Constitution, according to Article 225, it says that you can impeach a president, and it doesn't say any more. So therefore, we're not in violation. Um, due process fell by the wayside. Sorry. These are, sorry, I should have said this. This is the events of Curaguatu. These are the police. There were 350 policemen. There were 80 peasant families. And nobody quite knows what did happen. So what was also extraordinary about this is that these were lands that, in fact, had been earmarked under Strozner for agrarian reform. These were lands for landless peasants. However, under Strozner, they'd just been given to, the, to a general, in fact, to a senator from the Colorado party. So the peasants were actually asking for land that belonged to the social reform program. So the reaction was immediate on an international level and on a local level, that this was seen not as a constitutional impeachment of a president, a president but as a coup d'etat, a golpe, as, it, as is written here. Um, as protesters went onto the streets and were met by very well-prepared um, water cannon arrest, baton charges, peasants who came towards the capital to protest met roadblocks, and everything was calmed down within a matter of days. Mainly because immediately Lugo, to avoid any violence, simply accepted the verdict, said that this is a coup, and then stepped down. And that was that. He was replaced by Federico Franco, his, his vice president from the Liberal Party, who had hated the reform program pretty much the whole way along, and became interim president for the next uh, 10 months. So Lugo falls from power. And now to a, a little bit of an epilogue before I, I wrap up. The epilogue. A year later, in August um, 2013, Horacio Cartes became president in a landslide victory for the Colorado Party, thus returning them to what they considered as their natural place in Paraguayan politics. Now, what's fascinating about Cartes is he has no political background at all. But he's based his meteoric political rise on a business empire, which included foreign exchange, banking, huge land ownings, a football team, alcohol, and most successfully, cigarettes. Tabesa is the name of his company. He was imprisoned in the 1980s for, on allegations of tax evasion and fraud of over 10 million pounds, um, but he was later released. He's been accused of contraband, tax evasion, money laundering, illicit enrichment, and drugs trafficking by the US um, Drugs Enforcement Agency, all of which he denies. According to Sousa Cruz, the largest Brazilian cigarette producer, Tabesa Cartes' company controls 42% of the entire Brazilian contraband market in cigarettes. That's 200 million people. And contraband cigarettes are popular in Brazil because they're cheaper and more people smoke them. When Uruguayan President José Mujica warned of the victory of Colorado cartels, with obvious reference to drugs, he reflected the reputation of the Colorado Party in much of South America. So what can we make from this sobering and rather depressing um, tale? First of all, we have to be honest, there, there is an element of personal failing in terms of Lugo. Where is he? There he is. Even bishops 
or perhaps in this case especially bishops, are fallible, as it turns out. He was accused widely by his supporters of having zero interpersonal skills or leadership skills. He came from a very hierarchical, authoritarian organization, the Jesuits, and he, that was his style of leadership, and he managed to alienate just about everybody and was unable to reach out and form alliances across Congress or even within his coalition. Um, furthermore, to his shame, within the first 16 months, there were no less than three paternity cases that came to light against him. <laughs> now, there's obviously a certain issue of hypocrisy here, given that he was a man of God, and that's actually the way he dressed. That's not in his bishop's stuff. He, he did tend to dress and to remind people of where he came from with these very high-collared white shirts. Um, so there are certain issues of hypocrisy, but more importantly, the women who gave birth to his children were poor and had not been supported. So it raised a whole issue that undermined his issue as a man of the poor, as a defender of the poor, um, and raised issues of abuse of power. I think the, the second issue that we can learn from this is that in many ways this was a coup waiting to happen. There was no surprise when it actually happened. Lugo may have been a moderate social democrat by our standards, uh, more than any kind of ra radical revolutionary, but his reforms challenged the very model of democracy upon which the, the Paraguayan transition had been built, this very elitist model. Um, despite a history of hating each other, liberals and Colorados were quite happy to unite at key moments to block his reform on tax, on land, on judicial reform, and just about everything else, reflecting their commitment less to any kind of ideology or even democracy than defending their own interests at all costs, even if that meant undermining democracy. And in some ways, looking back, you could argue that this is a repeat of what happened or nearly happened in many other countries in Latin America. The unsuccessful opposition coups in Venezuela in 2002, in Ecuador in 2010, in Bolivia in 2007, and then the successful coup in Honduras in 2009. All of these, some would argue, would show that illegal and undemocratic methods will be used against presidents who threaten the power of entrenched elites. Um, and I think we can say safely that despite what academics might have been writing for the last 15 years about consolidation of democracy, that democracy is certainly not yet the only game in town in, in many parts of Latin America. And the danger of this is that what I mentioned earlier, defective democracies might not be just transitional regimes. They might not just be a blip. In fact, they might develop into the stable norm. People vote, but any kind of meaningful change is made impossible. And in this sense, you could arrive at the conclusion that it's not that Paraguay is in search of an elusive democracy, but really the problem is, is that the very search is elusive and is opposed by the most powerful political and economic actors in the country. Hence the title. Um, I wanted to finish on something just to lift the mood a little bit before we go for a glass of wine, because there are some positives that do come out of this, um, without wanting to, to sound um, superficial, because there are a couple of things. Number one is that efforts to defend democracy during the coup d'etat in, in July 2000, June 2012 did not come from the United States. Um, the US line was that it was a very much a hands-off approach, that they urged Paraguayans to act peacefully and responsibly and within the spirit of democracy. 
And in fact, they were pretty glad that Lugo went before he could have implemented too many of his reforms, I think. What was striking was that, in, was that the efforts to defend democracy came from Latin America itself. It came from Paraguay's Latin American partners throughout. From the right, Colombia, Mexico, and Chile, all the way through the political spectrum to Venezuela and Bolivia. All condemned what they unanimously said was a coup d'etat. Twelve foreign ministers flew to Asuncion during the impeachment process. All of the important ones flew to Asuncion to try and persuade the Paraguayan Senate not to go down this undemocratic road. Um, and then, in unprecedented fashion, Paraguay was suspended from Mercosur, the absolutely key trading, uh, regional trading bloc to which it belongs, and then from UNASUR, the Union of South American Nations, until democracy was restored. I don't think there's ever been a case in Latin America of such unanimous support in defense of democracy in one single country. And the other thing that I think we need to mention is that as the Argentinian Atilio Boron has argued, in countries characterized by poverty and highly unequal distribution of wealth and resources, social reform is as important as elections in terms of democratic citizenship and in terms of deepening of democracy. And the case of Paraguay, I think, shows that this is not just a theoretical debate that takes place among academics in the West, but it is a very real and ongoing struggle. For all his failings, Lugo did three things that have had an important impact. Number one, he debunked the theory of the myth, if you like, of invincibility of the Colorado party. Yes, they might be in power, and it might have been through certain uh, freak events that took him to power, but they have been defeated once. Number two, he opened up this whole debate about what is democracy. Just when many theorists in the West were trying to say, the debate's over, we know what it is. In Latin America, Lugo joined the debate in Latin America saying, no, actually, democracy could be something very different if we want to make it something very different. This is the first time that a president in Paraguay has ever even thought of saying something like that. And thirdly, within that, he reset the whole agenda in terms of social reform, social policy, and social welfare as key components of, de of democracy and democratic citizenship. And I think in this way, he might just possibly have sown the seeds of greater, greater social and political change in Paraguay in the future. Thank you very much.